VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gregor Robertson and alongside me today are Tom Roddy, Tony Cascarino and Alison Rudd. And Shotland are off to Deutschland. <laughs> <laughs> You're sounding extra Scottish today. I am, it's a glorious morning You're today. You're not going to laugh at it's your own g- jokes. <laughs> I can't help it, I can't help it. Yes, uh, that's, the, that's, that's the big story of the weekend. Uh, we'll also be talking booze at Wembley, uh, relief in Cardiff, hope in Manchester. Uh, and meeting our heroes. But first, Spain's 1-0 win against Norway confirmed Scotland's place at next summer's Euros, along with Spain, and we didn't even have to kick a ball. Uh, Joining me now is Michael Grant, Scottish football correspondent of the Times. Michael, first of all, how's the heat? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely fine, Gregor. I I didn't drink any more than I usually do on a Sunday night. Let's let's just leave it at that. Okay, okay. Um, this This is just... New ground for Scotland, isn't it? I mean, first of all, uh, back-to-back Euros for the first time qualification. Um, and a very different qualification from the, the Euro 2020 campaign last time, which was kind of through the back door. David Marshall's penalty yeah. penalty save in Belgrade and all that. This is different, isn't it? We won our first five games in a row, beat Spain, beat Norway. Um, it's remarkable. It is remarkable, yeah. It's very un-Scottish, really, to, to win it. Uh, or to sorry to qualify through um, you know so, so w- without without stress really you know I mean Scotland have always tended to drop points uh, I'm tempted to say against everybody but they, they tem- tended to drop points against the bottom two nations in the group that hasn't happened this time uh, they took full points from Cyprus they've taken three from three against Georgia so far but they also delivered those two really um, you know, pivotal results by beating Spain at Hamden and then by beating Norway in Oslo. So those five straight wins at the beginning of the campaign, as you say, have proven to be enough. Um, and uh, even though they lost in Seville last Thursday, we've qualified with two games to spare. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty it's pretty, uh, pretty glorious, to be honest, for Scotland at the moment. And uh, the supporters are already kind of booking up uh, flights and accommodation for Germany because they will go there in huge, huge numbers. He is up there with 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 the best Scottish manager of all time, though. Surely, uh, after this achievement, and uh, yeah, you know, I've asked you many times how 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 has he done it? Because it's not an easy question to answer. Yeah, it, 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 it's um, it's a strange one because he is he turned sixty during this uh, campaign, Gregor, and. 
obviously, you know, there's a kind of a couple of generations between him and the players, but from the very start, he's had complete buy-in from the players. I mean, I think they they like Clark and they and they've respected him and um, they've turned up for him, which has not always been the case for previous Scottish managers. You know, we had a, a kind of culture of call-offs and dubious injuries and so on, and and that just hasn't happened under Clark. The players, including the big name players, they've turned up for him from day one, and what you've got. And he's talked about this himself. Is is this kind of stability and consistency around the team? Um, and you know, there's about half a dozen players: Kieran Tierney, Callum McGregor, John McGinn, uh, Scott McTominay, Andy Robertson, who have got forty, fifty, sixty caps together. So they've they've been through a lot, and they've been through hard times as well. I mean, they lost a World Cup playoff to Ukraine. Uh, they lost a Nations League game in Ireland 3-0 and, and you know they've had rocky spells they, they were disappointing at the last Euros as well having got there they uh, they didn't really do themselves justice in two home defeats albeit the performance at Wembley was quite good um, so this is a team that has really kind of lived and won and lost and grown together um, and now the next stage is is, is the Euros next summer and, and hopefully getting out of a group for the first time well, that's that was my next question. What what can Scotland fans hope for in Germany after, as you say, the disappointment of, um, of, you know, perhaps not performing the way we thought we could have uh, at the last Euros. Well, I suppose it will depend on the, on the draw, won't it? The, the, the draws at the beginning of December, uh, Scotland will hope for a favourable section. I mean, I think had they won the the the, the qualifying group, which was still in their hands. If if Spain had drawn with Norway last night, Scotland would still have qualified, but still be top of the group. And obviously, that brings you pot one seeding at the uh, at the final. So it, it will be dependent on the group. But Scotland have shown uh, in recent performances: they beat Denmark at Hamden, they beat Spain at Hamden, uh, they beat Norway away. You know, at their best, they they are capable of giving fancied teams a bloody nose. Now, sometimes that is relying on the kind of Hamden energy and. Intensity, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see what they can do in Germany. But as I just said, they will be taking twenty, thirty, forty thousand fans with them. So um, there'll be an awful lot of support and, and kind of energy around the Scotland team at the finals. You know who um, Scotland remind me of, Michael? They remind me of Arsenal because they've both become. They both went through a period of just sort of almost being too pessimistic and giving up and the atmosphere at Hamden, the atmosphere at, at the Emirates was just like rubbish, really. And yeah, you got, got, yeah. the, got the sense that there was a, a, a sort of defeatism in the air. And then suddenly, Arsenal, you've got this, everybody's bought into, they've decided to buy into what Arteta's doing. <coughs> and, the, and the vibe is one that almost creates its own victory sometimes because there's such a extreme level of positivity and I, I feel like something similar has happened to Scotland that there's there's now this sense of we can do it and I whereas in the past I felt that there was this oh Scotland won't do it but they will they will and and the atmosphere is almost uh, well I've, I've called I've called Arsenal a cult atmosphere it's almost like that at Scotland do you do you see a parallel yeah. like I do I, I, I do and, and, and you're absolutely right because there were years at Hamden of of misery, really, you know. Uh, the, the competitive games would get maybe twenty-five, thirty thousand. 
some of the friendlies were you know fifteen thousand at Hamden, and Hamden just doesn't lend itself to 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 those sort of crowds. The, the atmosphere was terrible. It, there was a kind of a cycle of negativity around around repeated failures. I mean, they didn't qualify for the tournament from '98 to to 2020. So, yeah, absolutely, there was no question about that. Uh, although I must admit, there was always talk about oh, there's now apathy towards the Scotland team, and I never, I never really bought into that because I think what you saw after bad results was a kind of absolute uh, firestorm of criticism on social media, and I thought, well, this that's not apathy, you know, that's people not turning up and, and disliking the team, but there's not apathy. And, and you've seen it, Ali, with, when the results have improved, uh, the, the support now is, has, has come back in huge numbers. And, um, you know, it's consecutive kind of sellouts at Hamden for, for the last four or five qualifying games. You know, so And, and that's down the clock at these players. Michael, I was going to ask you a question. I, I mean, I played with Steve at Chelsea um, for about two or three years. He was club captain. He was understated in many ways. He was very considered when you talked to him. Didn't get too high, didn't get too low. Then he goes on his yeah. career path and, you know, he's managed, he's been assistant. And then comes, which I, I saw in Jack Cholton, that an international ch- job can come at the perfect time for you as a manager, where it's just... Absolute perfect timing. He comes into a job with pl- a lot of good players, um, but players that can be made heroes as well, like Lyndon Dykes or Stuart Armstrong or Ryan Christie. Yeah. He's got that mix in it. But again, he never gets too high and too low after victories and losses. Yeah, that's really irritating for us journalistically, you know. <laughs> we, we, we would love him to get high and low, but he, no, you're absolutely right, so he doesn't. Um, and yeah, I think he takes a certain pride in that kind of. Uh, you know, stable kind of personality. I mean, he he is a doer guy. You know, I mean, you know, he doesn't. He, he wouldn't see that as a, a criticism, frankly. You know, he doesn't doesn't give much to us. We we got on fine. We we like him. Um, you know, he, he'll stand around and give us a bit of small talk, but he's, that's just not his personality to be kind of flamboyant or or expressive. But um, <clears throat> yeah, he's uh, he has um, uh, he's really taken to international football, and I think. He spoke a, a little while ago about almost being surprised by how much he's enjoyed it, and you know, surprised by how he's had to adapt. He didn't, he wasn't sure at first whether it would suit him, because you know, as a club manager, he was very much a, a training ground manager and kind of drilling, you know, repetitive training sessions into his players and so on. You can't do that mm. with Scotland because you just don't have the players together long enough. Yeah. Michael, but, um, I, I just wanted to jump in there because uh, when you said about, you know, as, as a press guy working with uh, Stevie, I interviewed Billy Gil- Gilmore about three weeks ago. And of my first question, I thought, yeah. I'm going to put my two foot in straight away. <laughs> Played with Stevie Clark and I said to Billy, so we're on, on a Zoom call. Luckily, there's no pictures, but it was a Zoom call. I said to Billy Gilmore, I said, I used to play with your, your, your gaffer at Scotland Neville, Billy, and he's OK. I said, yeah, we, I said, we used to joke. We used to say, like, Stevie gets up in the morning, he smiles and gets you out of the way. <laughs> and no reaction from Billy Gilmore at all. And, I'm, and the producer's going to me, move on, move on, move on. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking, lucky this is on Zoom because it just went straight over his head. And uh, just, it just made me laugh. Yeah. I thought I'd give you an insight to uh, Stevie Clark. Well, I mean, Pat, Pat Nevin is, is, is one of Steve's pals because obviously they go back to Chelsea days as well. And, and Pat will tell you that, that Clark's great company and you know, yeah. funny and... Uh, yeah. 
witty and all the rest of it. But I mean, he just chooses not to show any of that to us publicly, you know. <laughs> yeah, spot on. Well, yes. he has, he's got a whole nation smiling now. So, uh, <laughs> thank you, Stevie, and thank you, Michael Grant. No problem. Cheers, Thanks, Michael. Thanks, guys. Bye. Cheers, Michael. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Are, Engl- are you guys going to join us in Germany, guys? <laughs> <laughs> not if it's going to be full of broad Scottish accents. <laughs> Ollie Watkins scored the only goal of the game in England's friendly win against Australia uh, on Friday night. But with uh, the qualifier against Italy on Tuesday, we're, we're, we'll talk a bit more about England's performance uh, in Thursday's show. Probably the main issue to, to have emerged from, from Friday's game was the booing of Jordan Henderson, who was captain for the night by sections of the home crowd at Wembley. This is, of course, in relation to, to Henderson's move to the Saudi Pro League in the summer after being a vocal ally of the LGBT community during his time at Liverpool. And he's also lending his support to the campaign for, for Saudi to win the, to, to host the World Cup in 2034. Gareth Southgate said it defied logic, Tom, and he didn't understand it. It was pretty easy to understand, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, It was. that was probably the most disappointing it might be one of the most disappointing things i've ever heard him say actually because it was quite it was quite clear why the booing happened you um, can disagree with it like, yeah, we can, can talk di- about absolutely. that but it's, it's that's clear exactly why what i mean by happened. the disappointment is that i would if he was kind of it's almost this pushing it under the carpet and and um ignoring the issue that's at hand because and i think like most people have acknowledged it is an insult to people's in intelligence and the reason that Jordan Henderson has gone over to Saudi Arabia and um and the the re- that is the reason why fans are booing him um because of the hypocr- hypocrisy how was, what was can you describe the booing? well what yes, was it was of course, it, was it yeah. pantomime booing or was it a lot of people how would you so it was one of those things where when the team was read out there was uh, a smattering (laughs) we'll begin with a smattering Smattering there was a smattering of booze Uh, pantomime booze no 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 Um, and then and then it happened throughout the game when when he was was in possession possession of the ball but far from it wasn't it wasn't very loud yeah. Put it that way. But then when he gets replaced, when he comes off the pitch, that was when it was at its loudest. Um and that would I would say not not a majority, but a significant number of people. Do you think Wembley. then that Southgate's response is because those boos aren't just for Hendo, they're for him, for picking him. Uh no, you can't escape the relationship. And giving him the armband. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's backing and also, it's not just—it's not just the fact that Southgate is ignoring why people feel let down in some way or being treated as stupid. It's the fact that Southgate is also ignoring the fact that it is palpably affecting his football ability. Yeah, I, I think that he is. Ironically, this is. Pro- I would. I'd be interested to see how Gareth Southgate would have approached this issue in two thousand and nineteen. Because I think he has got to a stage where he is exhausted with mm-hmm. dealing with social issues constantly um, and feeling like a spokesman for 
the nation rather than just football. So, you I think, think, do you think he went to see Dear England and thought, "Oh my goodness, not. I'm a politician"? Definitely, he definitely <laughs> didn't go to see that. Um, but I think that's why, and I think he would have addressed it in a totally different way in 2019. And I think what we'll see is him trying to avoid these subjects a little bit more than he has done. Um, and yet, but he's not avoid he's not avoiding it by doing it. And yet, by saying defies logic is actually quite a strong um, criticism of of the fan base because I think what he's trying to do now is say that football de- uh, that decisions that he makes are based on football alone. Mm. <laughs> and incidentally, after the game on Friday, I mean that was one of the worst performances I've seen of Jordan Henderson. So whether whether he does continue to be involved, uh, which I think he will because Southgate's already set his stall out there. Whereas, ironically, you get a situation which is uh, Raheem Sterling, who's not been involved since the World Cup. Tom, I, and this is for all of us here, are we, are we kidding ourselves here on this? Because Jordan Henderson, if you listened, even over if you go back five, six years ago, there was a lot of people who felt he didn't deserve a place in the team. You know, I do radio a lot. I, you know, I, I look at replies and, you know, Jordan Nelson's, I, I remember thinking he, he gets a lot of stick when he's doing really well. And this is way before we've even got to this Qatari issue. But Jordan Henderson was getting sort of stick but not being booed five years ago. Would that be a fair point? Uh, there was not by a majority, by a number of people that felt that they didn't want Jordan in that midfield. I think he did enough to maybe change perceptions of that. Well, there were Liverpool. The there were Liverpool supporters who weren't bowled over by him and mm. won over very gradually by him. Also... And the fact that Klopp had faith in him, I think. I think what we're forgetting here is, I think Henderson gets on well with his managers and listens to them. Mm and says the right thing to his managers and they can see how much effort he puts in. I I don't doubt for a minute that even though it will have an impact on, on his technical ability, i.e. it will diminish and his fitness levels will diminish and the heat will have an impact on him at his age, I don't doubt for a minute he gives it everything. Yeah. No. Eventually people have been won over by yes. his attitude on the pitch and he's... <laughs> but maybe we've ascribed too much nuance to him and uh, social awareness to him because he's backed various campaigns over recent years that for some reason we decided he was some sort of paragon of virtue and he's not. Well, he, no, he, people don't like it. He also kind of acted as if he didn't. He wasn't sure why. He wanted somebody to explain to him why <laughs> why he'd been booed in the game. He, I think in his first yeah. answer, and Hen- you can read in Henry Winter's piece in the Times today that he, he tied himself in knots. Yeah. Mm. He first said, I, I don't know, why, why, why do you think I was booed? But um, you yeah. can you can see you can playing the fool. <laughs> reading his quotes, you can see him almost walking this tightrope of not wanting to upset Saudi Arabia and the views and values over there because he talks about bringing about change in Saudi Arabia. That's part of his Being motivation. Inclusive. But but he doesn't. Mm. But he but then when it comes to what is that change yeah, off the pitch? No 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 on the pitch it's football and I'm not a politician exactly so and yet he's also you also see him trying to appease people here and the elephant in the room is that he doesn't address the the money side can I just add on Alison made a really valid point about Gareth Southgate relationship with obviously with Jordan 
Now, there would have been conversations before we actually decided to move to Qatar. And if you Saudi, know, the Saudi. Uh, sorry, yes, uh, to Saudi. Um, and the, the conversation would have gone on, well, if I do go, will I still have an involvement with, with the England team? And probably, I don't know for definite, but I don't, Gareth would have let him know, well, if you go there, Jordan, I'm sorry, I'm not being able to pick you. So I imagine the conversation would have gone, no, if you're still playing, you're playing games regularly, I'm taking you to the Euros. I just don't see how, you know, I played international football long enough to know what my manager would have said to me at certain times, whether I liked it or not, I was being told. Yeah, Henderson said that. He said that they had a, he had a conversation with Southgate before he went there. So clearly the answer was, it doesn't matter. So to Gareth, it wasn't a problem, him going. And I think part Saturday. of that is because with the Euros, if he is involved in the Euros, which I think he probably will be, it'll be the... Um, It'll be the Connor Cody role. It'll be the the influence on the dressing room yeah. uh, and the training ground and keeping the standards up rather than the influence on the pitch because I think there you're going to see Bellingham, Rice, plus one other. But do you and listen? I don't see that That's being interesting, Tom, because do you listen as a dressing room? Do you listen to a player who's no longer playing in Europe? Yeah, he's got who enough is, credit in the who's bank. Be, who's been yes. pilloried. And is is playing in a in a completely different type of league where they're nascent and they're trying to work out what they can do and it and I don't know that as a dressing room you're going to be united by a player who's dividing the fans. I, I think I think, I think he has will. enough. Yeah. I think he has enough credit in the bank. The, the, well, finally on this, booing more generally. I mean, Southgate had a point. He said, "How is going? How is booing going to help him or the team? Like, is there ever justification for booing Tony? You've been booed. Well, if you're playing badly, yeah." I've been okay. there for footballing reasons. What yeah, about footballing reasons? reasons never a problem. Don't like it. You think it. it's all you have to boo for football re- footballing reasons? I do. Yeah, I think if you well, if you're not happy with look, we all go to see films or we might go to the theatre. We come out and we go. Well, that weren't very good, was it? You know, that didn't enjoy that. You know, I do I boo? No, I of course I don't. But then I don't feel like when I got boos, I just used to think, do you know what? Maybe I ain't playing that well. Maybe I'm not doing the things that are expected of me. You know, I didn't. I didn't take it that personally. I was more bothered about my family and friends having to be sit and listen to it and being booed, and which lots of players have spoke out about. I, I, you know, I think personal criticism is different. But if you're booing because you're unhappy with what you're witnessing, you just have to take it on the chin. And the only way you can prove your point is by when you cross that white line, how you perform. You know what do what do actors although do when they're in a ca- film? Although in this case you can't do that because it's nothing to do with his performances. Well, yeah. and that's, and I that's, think I, well, it see, is partly though. I would say it is. I, I would dis- I would say differently to that, Gregor. I think there's an element, and whether it's he plays for Liverpool or players play for Man United, and it can be different types of fans at stadiums. I do feel that he's he. There is a number of people, even within the game, who think he isn't quite good enough for England. Or at this present time, I think there's been periods you can absolutely say Jordan Henderson was number one choice and in that team. But I think there's still a real feeling of from from what I from the viewing public who thinks he's not in England's best eleven. I don't, I don't think the booze had anything to it's do the, with but the way But isn't it the double whammy of it though? If, if if Jordan Henderson somehow, I don't know how he would do it, but somehow went to play in Saudi and came back a better player, absolutely scintillating in midfield, mm. running the show. Pinging passes around, tackling, looking like Captain Fantastic. I don't, I don't think there would have been as many boos. It's, it's linked to the fact 
that it's the hip- hypocrisy, mm. his inability to explain what he's done, and and f- f- people feel like he's telling them the truth. Plus the fact they can visibly, palpably see he is diminishing as a player because he's not playing in the Premier League. Mm. Does Ronaldo get booed by Portugal fans? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> no, exactly. So he's gone to Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia for lots and lots of money. OK, he's been incredible for Portugal. He's been one of the best players. It's a bad example. but <laughs> <laughs> It is a bad example. But I'm, what I'm trying to make the point is that if you are doing what Alison's just said, Probably they won't boo him. Yeah, mm. but also I think part of this is to do, you know, who gets Stephen Gerrard's out there managing? He's not playing he for England. Get... I know that for a fact. <laughs> he doesn't. He hasn't faced the same criticism no. from the British press, from the pr- British media, from supporters. Well, he has from me. Uh, sorry, the, yeah. the, you do represent the British press. Yes. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> Has but he been as outspoken, a whole, though? As a whole. Has he said much? And But the whole point is because Jordan Henderson built his image as this virtued um, supporter of the LGBTQ plus hmm. community and then has done a total U-turn hmm. on all of that work. I think that is why, because Steven Gerrard didn't do that in his career. And the, on the booze with... Uh, booing a player if if Gareth Southgate said how is booing Harry Maguire going to help the England team I would totally understand that because that doesn't benefit anyone apart from maybe the the person booing getting frustration out of them themselves but on this I think it's that people are placing their personal values above the benefits of England in an England-Australia friendly game on a wet Friday night at Wembley okay well there were no boos in Cardiff um, yeah, no two goals from, from Harry Wilson made it a massive 2-1 win for Wales against Croatia which moved Wales above Croatia in Group D with two games to play and Wales now have automatic qualification in their hands Armenia away and Turkey at home still to come next month and a huge win for Rob Page as well yeah. Tony because the pressure Absolutely. was really spiking up even some kind of comments from the, the Welsh uh, FA as well were a little bit, you know, you saw some of the players come out afterwards with some spiky responses to to the comments about his position being under review. Uh, and this, well, Roy Keane had a job at the weekend. Apparently, he was going to be the next Wales manager. Yeah, there were a lot of yeah, <laughs> few names linked. So, so a massive win for for Wales and for Rob Page. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Croatian team, a lot of good players in it as well. Indeed. So, and they've been a very good side for a long time. Croatia, um, Harry Wilson him a mention because I watched him a lot when he went to Derby, the young Liverpool player that you know went on loan with Tomore, Mason Mount, I think Frank brought him in, Frank Lampard uh, and Harry Wilson. I I was always had a bit of an issue with him as a wide player and I say that because I never thought he was quick enough. Technically superb um, and it was interesting because Wales used him in that number 10 role. So you're going to have to give Rob Page a bit of credit here we are because you know alongside Kiefer Moore up front who is leading the line, and the first goal is a typical example of leading the line. It ends up being a long pump forward. Kiefer Moore helps it on. Harry Wilson in his best position. Central. Great finish. Great, great finish. But he, I think he excels in that role. More sent. He, to me, is a little bit like Madison. He can be that type of player. Obviously, he's never played it enough because it's a number of managers, and they've done it at Fulham with him, will stick him out wide. 
And I don't think he's quick enough to be a wide player. I think if you can get him inside and a little bit closer to the centre forward, he's a very good finisher. And he's always had a decent goal record. So, fair play uh, to Wales. Nico Williams was really good in the game as well. Um, it was a massive result for Rob Page because you can imagine if they'd lost the game and they're out of the tournament, the reaction would be that's the end of Rob Page and you know, then they're on to move into the next manager. So, huge. And gives them a glimmer of hope of qualifying. Huge in the in the post Gareth Bale uh, Gareth Bale era as well, Alison. Yeah, no, they found a way to. Yeah, I mean, you when you're a team the size of Wales with access to, I mean, Wales. I, I don't know. I, this is going to sound very patronising. I always smile at a Wales lineup because it's it goes it, the full gamut of, of football. It's it's players you don't know very well. You play in lower divisions, and there's always a few superstars in there, <laughs> and you think ah. Must be quite hard to manage that, get that going. But what what you do is you get a, a strong sense of national identity, and togetherness, and mm. pride. You feed off the crowd. You somehow knit it all together, and they've managed to do that intermittently under Rob Page, actually. So that it felt a little bit accelerated to say his position was under review because that getting that that mix together is a hard thing to do and he's proved he can do it and as you say Gregor they used to rely a lot emotionally as well as technically on Gareth Bale I feel I mean Gareth Bale would often be there and you know yeah superstar but when he was past his peak you'd think well you know why is he there really he's there because he's Gareth Bale he's not there because he's actually going to be the best choice on the pitch but it lifted them and it made the opposition think, ooh, Gareth Bale, Wales have got Gareth Bale. So it's post-Gareth Bale era and they're still producing just enough individual talent and for for it to have, for them to be able to express it is to credit to, to Page, I think, because often you see, well, for example, with England, we still often see the most gifted players not delivering when they should and and we know the best England players play not as good for England as they do for their clubs and they are inhibited in some way but if you can get your best players to be audacious enough to try a beautiful shot a clever pass to have that belief that they can show flair and take risks that that's that's worth sticking with Rob Page for I think Okay, still loads more to come. After the break, we'll be talking Manchester United's uh, takeover, half take, quarter takeover, is it? I think. <laughs> <laughs> and Alison Rod's 15 year wait for uh, an interview with our hero, y- Yari Lippmann. And we'll be talking about other heroes we have met or would love to meet. Um, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game for the latest subscription offer. listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gregor Robertson. Here with me is Alison Rudd, Tony Cascarino and Tom Roddy. So, Manchester United. How Ratcliffe outfoxed Qataris in Race for United. That's the headline in today's Times uh, under the story written by Matt Lawton, Chief Sports Correspondent for The Times. This is the story of the British billionaire Sir Jim Ratcliffe uh, who's expected to complete the deal for a 25% stake in the club for up to £1.3 billion this week. Matt, um, this has been an 11-month saga and an end of sorts, I suppose, uh, is finally in sight. Yeah, it feels like it. Um, we we got a feeling a couple of weeks ago that the um, this revised offer from... Uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe in Ineos was being taken seriously in, in fairness to uh, um, Sky News they were the first to to break the story about the, the this offer of 25% um, but um, both Matt Dickens and I who have uh, been covering this story for what seems like an eternity <laughs> uh, did, did very quickly um, establish from our own sources that yeah it was um it was something they were taking very seriously. And then um, I was actually sitting uh, about to have a beer and, and watch the rugby on Saturday night with a few friends when um, uh, the uh, PR firm Hanover that acts for um, the Qataris uh, suddenly dropped a message into my WhatsApp uh, box, as I'm sure they did a few journalists, and said so that they were pulling out. And that was a pretty seismic moment because... That just said to me that they, it was a, uh, essentially a face-saving exercise. Um, they know that Radcliffe has probably got this, and and they've stepped away from it. So yeah, it, 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 I think it will be ratified on Thursday. I would be amazed if it isn't. Uh, not that um, you know we, we we have felt like it it's been coming to an end before. Um, I think we did actually report at one point a few months ago that that they were weeks away from agreeing a deal with Ratcliffe uh, and, and here we are uh, in mid-October. But um, uh, no, it feels like we are finally coming to an end in this process. But obviously the, the Manchester United fans have wanted the, the Glazer family out of the club for, for quite some time. A majority of them have anyway. And yeah. th- this is not, this might be a first step towards that, that happening, but it's not happened. So, you know... I, there's quite a lot that we seem to not know about this deal, whether it's going to be the first step, in, as, as I say, in terms of the, the Glazers eventually leaving the club, or whether it's just, um, you know, is that going to be set in stone? Um, I don't think it can be set in stone this week, Gregor, because I think 
um, and, and Matt and I were talking about this, I think there are certain uh, rules, uh, stock exchange rules, that would that would not allow um, a statement, let's, let's for argument's sake say, that says they're buying this much now, but they will buy the rest of it in stages over the next um, one, two, three, four years. Having said that, it's inconceivable to me that, that this isn't simply the first stage in a takeover, in a full takeover. Um, Jim Ratcliffe is not interested, I don't think, in, in just owning 25% of Manchester United. Um, it's just the way the deal has had to be structured. Um, it's, there, there has been this complication around A and B shares when he was looking just to buy predominantly the Glazers' stake in the club. Um, they ran into legal difficulties, and I think that's why, in fairness to us, when we thought they were close back in sort of May, um, that was before they ran into these legal issues with the minority shareholders who, ha- who basically said, hang on a minute, so if he spends whatever it would have been, three, four billion on, on the 69% that you guys have got, i.e. the Glazers, what about the rest of us? We're all going to get stiffed here. So they ran into issues with that. So, yeah, I I think this is almost certainly the first step in a full takeover, but I'm not sure we will, that they can actually say that in so many words um, when this 25% uh, purchase is ratified. Hi, Matt. It's Tom. Tom here. Um, With with the... Where the Ratcliffe is taking over the football operation side of things, C- can you explain mm. that to, to listeners, how that's going to work and whether you think, will that be a bumpy start? Is that is that um, possible for him to take control just on the football side and the Glazers not get involved? I think it's possible because if, it's, if there's a contract that says you buy 25% but we hand over control of the football side, then I guess that's what happens. Um if I was a Manchester United fan, I'd be a little bit queasy about it. Yes, I know they've they've got a football club at the moment in Nice, um, not been massively successful with it. Um, and other sporting franchises they've taken over, um, you know, it hasn't gone massively successfully well. Um, um, you know, look at David Walsh, I thought, wrote a very interesting piece about Dave Dalesford's um, position um at the weekend about Team Ineos, which was Team Sky, and yes, they won a. I think they they won their last tour, to France, um, under the Ineos banner, but they haven't been the dominant force that they were since uh, that that change in ownership came. So, you know, as I say, it, it's a bit like, and you, you know as well as anybody, Tom, you know. Todd Bowley and the guys buy Chelsea and they think they can run a football club and, and look what's happened so far. So um, I guess they will have their own ideas as, as we've alluded to today. I think there will be changes that will be made at the very top. Um, but do they have the expertise to run a club of Manchester United size? I guess, I guess we'll have to see. But no, we understand that is... Yeah, that is part of the deal here. If you, if you want us to begin this process of taking over the club, we actually want control of it on the football side immediately. But just finally, why why is it taking eleven months, and why why have the you know did they not really want to sell 
the the club in its entirety just now when when as we said the kind of the Qatari backed bid was for I think you know in excess of five billion and and debt free yeah. uh, you know that would that would have, you would have thought that would have ticked a lot of boxes for a for a seller but did they just not meet the valuation? Yeah, I think in in the most basic terms that is the answer they just never met the valuation and and they kept holding out in the hope that the Qataris would finally crack if you like. And, and, and meet the uh, meet the valuation that the Glazers set on the club, which we we know was in excess of six billion. I, I alluded to it today when I spoke to um, when I spoke to the bankers at Rain, the New Yorkers that I got to know a bit during the Chelsea takeover. Um, when I spoke to them back in back in uh, November, when sitting in our lovely apartments in um, Doha. Um, that was the that was the value that they that they put on it six to eight billion, um, but if you break it down the last eleven months, Gregor, you know, so the, so the so the thing went up for sale in in November. Uh, they obviously hoped that there would be lots of bidders, and in particular, as I said in my piece this morning, sort of U.S. tech companies that would have the expertise around global fan bases and all that stuff. And that didn't materialise, but I guess you do you do sit and wait, and you, you hope that these people come forward. And you know, I did I do think they were thinking in terms of the Googles and the Apples and the Yahoos and all these sort of people that would be coming forward, and that didn't happen. And it wasn't until February that um, that the Qataris then came forward with their offer, and they this foundation, this nine two foundation emerged, and I think Radcliffe was around at the same time. Um, then we had the bidding process that went through a series of a series of um, phases uh, that sort of ran to April May time, and then actually what happened was, as I, as I alluded to earlier, they ran into some legal difficulties in terms of the Radcliffe proposal. Radcliffe was much closer to meeting the overall valuation, which is why by May we were reporting that they were the favourites, but they ran into difficulties, and I think the reason that they've only got to this point now is because it has simply been uh, an issue that lawyers on both sides have been working their way through and we know how long that can take um, and in the meantime kept holding out in the hope that eventually the Qataris would crack and would meet would meet the, the, the Glazers valuation but in fairness to the Qataris and I made this point this morning while we just assume they've got you know, and more money than God, and they spend all these billions on hosting a World Cup, and they build an entire city that, as I when I went out there in March, there's basically nobody there unless there's a sporting event. Um, you know that they've got that kind of money. They 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 were quite determined not to be exploited for their wealth, if you like, and they and 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 they had what they felt was fair market value for the club, and they weren't prepared to budge. And ultimately, they haven't budged. And as a consequence, they're going with Ratcliffe. OK, Matt Lawton, thank you very much. No worries. Thanks, Cheers, Matt. Matt. Cheers. Cheers, Matt. Oh, yeah, God, thank you. Like you can read Matt's excellent piece uh, at the Times Online just now and also another piece by Matt Dickinson um, kind of pivoting towards what this means for Manchester United on the football side uh, in the future. He, he writes that senior, several senior figures will, will fear for their future. Um Richard Arnold, John Murtaugh. Um What does it mean for the here and now, Alison? This is not going to lift any gloom around Old Trafford because 
the glazers are still going to be in situ. Well, yeah, the, the I mean, the, the the winners out of this are, are the glazers because, I mean, it's... I mean, I, can't, I don't know why Marie Antoinette came into my head. I think it's about to do with cake and eating cake and having a lovely time because <laughs> they, they, if they will retain control, they will have made a profit, so they're making more money by the investment, by selling their shares to a billionaire, and they don't lose the toy they have in Manchester United. And yet, if anything goes wrong on the pitch, they can say, well, you know, that, that bit's not ours anymore. That's all down to to, to Jim. A look at Jim, what he's doing. So it, it, they're the winners, and if they're the winners, the fans won't be happy that they come out of it grinning, if you like. Um, I think the fans should should actually take a step back and think, well, this in the short term is, is slightly unpalatable, but in the long term it could be, particularly because I think. You were, you were trying to say, Gregor, you wonder, I think you were trying to work out how many fans were actively anti-Glazer and you ended up saying most. But I think even more wouldn't have wanted them to be owned by Qatar, actually. Yeah. And given current um, Middle Eastern events and Hamas links to Qatar, it would have been absolutely toxic politically if Qatar had taken over. We'll just leave it at that. So I think in terms of the fact that there was, it was basically a two-horse race, the more acceptable face of new ownership progress has been made great i i am cynical and i sense that matt was too i'm not sure but I, i'm cynical about having a division like this it's unusual um it's almost like uh radcliffe is is set up to be the fall guy because i think there's a lot wrong at manchester united and <laughs> whilst being proactive and and, and, and and yes maybe people will get sacked but just one area for example is the amount of injuries they sustain and they're having uh, investigations into why that's happening but at the moment the investigations seem to be by themselves no one external is coming in to say why this is happening it it's uh, it it I, I am I wish them well but I I think I think it's going it's going to be an massive puzzle that could mean that on the pitch it gets worse before it gets better. Yeah, I, I agree with Alison in that um, I thought the in the same way that Ed Woodward became a lightning rod for the criticism uh, for decisions at Man United taking away that pressure for some period from uh, from the Glazers I think the same, as soon as a red it was going to be 25%, but he was taking over full control of the football operations. The The direction of fire is aimed immediately at, at Ratcliffe and the decisions he makes. And it sounds, reading the two mats uh, work this morning, it sounds like there's going to be significant change. And, you, you know, you can sort of, if you take the optimistic point of view, they've had time at Nice, which hasn't gone hugely successfully but has almost given them uh, a way of dipping their toe into football and experiencing the mistakes and the things that that are right to do and the things that are wrong to do and the appointments where you should because it's improved it was a disaster at first but it's improved at Nice so they've got that experience of of running a football club now um, 
that they wouldn't have done before. And it was, you know, Ratcliffe's Ratcliffe's eleventh hour offer for Chelsea. I think was a way of, I think it was a PR exercise really of of preparing people for his role into his step into football now. So you, you played in France and you know follow French football. What's the what's the view of of their sort of stewardship of of Nice? Well, the Nice has got a new stadium. So there's been a real uplift. I mean, I played against Nice uh, probably three or four times in my career in France, and it's relatively a very small club with a not a great you know fan base. That was Nice. Always could entice players to come to the football club because it was obviously Cote d'Azur, yeah. beautiful <laughs> place to live. You could you know so you could use that as a you know uh, to improve the side. It's a completely different Nice from what I played against. You know, even though they're not competing at the, the top of the table, um, you know we've seen. You know, obviously goalkeeper Schmeichel went across. We've seen Ross Bartley go across. And Aaron Ramsey. Aaron Ramsey. Yeah. We've had others. We've watched them go there in recent years. And I agree with what Tom said. They're sort of dipping their football or their toes into the water about what goes on in French football. Um, I I put if I get to Man United because there is so much that's gone wrong at United from recruitment. Contracts. I have a real problem. I'm not saying this now. I said this at the start of the season. I had a real issue that Marcus Rashford given a really record-breaking deal. You know, off of the back of a very good season last year, but he's been at United a long time. I had a big problem with Fernandez given the captain, you know, captaincy when they let Ronaldo go, and then this guy was given a new deal as well. I, I find that they've they've not got it right. You know, it feels like you sometimes have to be brave in sport and go. Could should we have sold Rashford for 100 million? I think in the summer there'd have been people to take him. Now other people might go, you can't do that, Sal. I think the very best managers know who they want and who they bring in, and I think the club recruitment team do as well. I think they've made so many mistakes, not just on transfers. You know, Casemiro was a lot of money, top player, 31 years old, 70 million pound, a four-year deal. That deal to me was crazy. And yes, he initially done really well for them, and they might argue. De Gea given a free, a new goalkeeper coming in looks way worse than De Gea. You know, at the moment, okay, he might turn out great for them. But a £45 million call on a new goalkeeper, I, I find their decision making, and you can carry on. There's a number of other players at Man United you could go in with, you know, new deals or, you know, but this has been happening a long time. I remember Phil Jones getting a new five year deal when he was injured every five minutes. That deal, and and you, we may laugh and go, well, someone agreed that contract. No one sort of said, well, maybe at best we'll give him a two-year deal. Just give him a two-year deal. If we really think he's got a chance, we'll give him a two-year new two-year deal. We'll sign it in a minute, and he gets a five-year deal. You know, I think so much has gone wrong in recruitment and transfer policies at Man United. They've embarrassed themselves. You know, even if you want to throw the Ronaldo one back in there, what happened there? That was a circus. What happened with Ronaldo? Yeah, he might have come back and it was all... I mean, he was making jokes about the club and talking about the, even the internet or the, is the same as what it was 15 years ago at the football club or the training ground. You know, so it, it's a real mess, the club. And I, I don't believe you, you can function. You know, one thing is, you know, mentioned Chelsea, whatever you say about Roman Abramovich, whatever your views are, how that club was run on their transfer policy, and not all of them didn't work, but there was a structure to be successful. This United one, it looks like a structure to failure for me every time. And I'm I'm not having a go at Marcus Rashford. I, I just feel like signings like Anthony, 
huge amounts of money. Sancho come, and none of these guys are improving. Now, you can blame the coaches, you can blame a manager, that they should be there to improve them, but I just think there's a real circus within the football club that you're seeing on the pitch as well. Okay. As Tom as Tom mentioned there in Matt Dickinson's piece, there's some, some really interesting insight about the kind of possibly the learnings that have they've taken from their their early uh, time in Nice. They've, they've, they're up their second uh, in mm. Liga and so far unbeaten this. And they've after a bit of an overhaul of the the club's st- um, club leadership, and, and they've got a young thirty-four-year-old manager pivot into a younger sort of dem- model, <laughs> a younger, model. yeah. So Manchester United will, will be hoping tentatively to see to see a little bit of that. Well, in that's the, the big question, isn't it? Can you apply what you've learnt at Nice to an absolutely gargantuan battleship of a club like mm. like Manchester United? I, I, it might be. I doubt it. Okay, big week for Manchester United and, and more to come on that story. You can read it all on uh, the Times website. Alison. Gregor. Yari Lippmanen. Yari Lippmanen. <laughs> 15 years you've waited to interview the great former, former Ajax, Barcelona and, of course, Liverpool. Uh, yes, yes. Number 10, forward, what would you... Well, he's a playmaker. Playmaker, okay. Yeah, How was I'm it? Ah well, meeting your heroes. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it, 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 this is no exaggeration. Um, I first time I saw Yaron Lippmann, I think I think he was probably weirdly wasn't him playing for Ajax. It was in a Finland game. I thought, oh my god, this guy's a magician, and loved him. Just loved the way he played. And then when he joined Liverpool on his full debut, I was at Villa Park for it, and he was okay. Aston Villa v Liverpool. Anyway, Liverpool won three nil, but I'd never seen I'd never seen anyone do what he did. He 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 made every player on the Liverpool team look three thousand percent better than they'd ever looked before. He made everyone else look like a genius. He'd play a ball knowing that the ball he passed would then make the ball that that player then passed to someone else better. It was incredible. He was the master puppeteer. I was. I was blown away and even though I was on duty I squealed and I did jump up and down <laughs> so huge 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 fan and then he joined um, weirdly he joined Fulham and I live around the corner from Fulham I thought it's a sign it's a sign <laughs> I think I think I'm going to interview him and the club said of course yes you must interview him but let him play a couple of games first and then he's got something to talk about he never played for them he was injured and he didn't play and so I phoned him after he'd left and said I was going to interview you after you'd played a few games but you haven't and he just said I don't do interviews don't like talking about the past I've done enough of that stuff I don't want to do it I said oh well, well maybe one day I'll convince you and he laughed he was very nice about it so then but the, oh, fi- that was 15 years ago so I've loved him longer than 15 years but it's 15 years since I first asked for an interview and I would text him I mean not so much that you'd call me a stalker I mean you know <laughs> I would say happy birthday on his let's see your birthday. phone <laughs> when, when's his birthday yeah? 20, 20th of February <laughs> and um, I would send him a, a, a birthday text I would, I would send him links to things I'd written about him because you know if you ever asked about your heroes yeah, yeah. and so on I wrote a very very long piece about him that was labelled love letter to Yari in a, in a magazine <laughs> once I send him links and I'd say I am officially your biggest fan amongst the UK media. And I'm, I mean, once he sent me a smiley emoji, 
I went banged on about that for a month. So you can imagine, you can imagine how excited I was when um, a couple of weeks ago, out of the blue, he just sends me a text and says he's got time on a drive from Lati, his home where he was born, uh, to um, Tallinn in Estonia, which is where he lives with his family. And I, I could have a long chat with him then. So, you know. I'd shrieked a bit, but it was very, very exciting. Very exciting. And uh, crucially, they do say, do not meet your heroes. And he he, he couldn't have been, A, more generous with his time. If He said he, he says, I don't like doing interviews because I'm just saying the same stories. I said, I'm going to try really hard to ask you questions you haven't been asked before, but I'm bound to ask some. But if he was bored, he didn't show it at all. He was um, very, very chatty and... Well, everything I I hoped he would be um, humble when he spoke about he spoke about his love for Liverpool FC as a child and his heroes, which were Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalglish. I mean, he sounded like a small child. You know, he he doesn't he has heroes too, and he couldn't quite get over the fact that Kevin Keegan, when he was with Hamburg, played at Lati in the Cup Winners Cup, which was his tiny club in Finland, where. You know, he had family connections and he was like, Kevin Keegan once played at my hometown club. And I said, yeah, but Kevin Keegan doesn't have a statue, Yuri, and you do. Because <laughs> he does. He has a statue. So he was fantastic. And his career is slightly, slightly, there's a slight tinge of sadness to it because he's, he, he won everything you can win with Ajax, including the Champions League. But then injury did affect his time at Barcelona and at Liverpool so that the, the club subsequently only saw fleeting glimpses really of his genius and that that is a shame and some people were negative about it I, I find that astonishing no one can help the fact they get injured you know you get, a, get an injury you get an injury I mean he broke his wrist ankle didn't he as well he broke he had loads of an- yeah. ankle issues and, didn't it, he? And, he, and he broke his wrist as well yeah. and, and and you know you break, break something you, you're going to be out the, I mean his time at Barcelona I think was really frustrating because he, he said you know I would be I'd be fit for two months and I think this is it I'm going to grab my opportunity and really you know be in a team of superstars but and he would and they would see something wonderful and and then he would be then he would get a small injury or a large injury didn't but 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 he is a god uh, in Holland because. Oh, okay. Um, because <laughs> th- there was there were no injury problems when he was with Ajax, and at the 2019 Champions League semi-final between Tottenham and Ajax, I was there, and I saw Yari's uh, face on the big screen. I thought, oh, that means does that mean he's in the stadium? So I asked one of the Dutch journalists, "What does that mean? Where is he?" And he said he was probably in the director's box. So I ran, I texted Yari and said, I'm coming to say hello to you. So I I ran to the director's box and he came out. And as I was about to lean forward to shake his hand, about 40 Ajax fans just ran in between me and him because he, it was like being mobbed, superstar mob, superstar mobbing, like those old Beatles movies when people just scream and scream and go mad. They were taking his photograph. They asked me to take their photograph with him and I'm like, but I wanted to anyway. and and it was all a bit much and so all I could do was all lunge forward and say oh I'm Alison from the Times that was it there was no conversation because he was led away from the the mob of and he said that one of the reasons he doesn't like doing interviews is that 
it's very hard for him to say yes to one person and not the 500 Dutch journalists who ask him every five minutes for his opinion on the latest player, what's going wrong at Ajax, what's going right at Ajax, who's the next Jari Littman. And they just want to know all the time because he is, he is a god there. I would say they've Ajax have produced so many amazing players. But I think of a certain generation anyway, if you said who is your idol, they would say Jari Littman. And he remains mine, and that's the beautiful thing about it. He didn't disappoint me. Brilliant. Great hair as well. I always remember he had great hair. <laughs> <laughs> Come on then, have we met uh, any any heroes and been disappointed or What, or just in happy? the football field? Uh, football any. Arena. Um, two, I, I met Kenny Dalglish, who was... Uh, my two favourite players were Kevin Keegan and, uh, and Kenny Dalglish, so I'm in common with Yari. Um, I met Kenny, that was... Strange, because Kenny is quite um, dour in a way, and Steve you know that there's going to be a bit of a <laughs> bit of a dry comment that comes from him because I've been warm. Obviously, I know Liverpool players, and but that was still, was still great. Yeah. I, you know, say nothing against Kenny because he was he was still great, but he, man, a few words, yeah, yeah, very very much so. Um, and probably the, my worst experience is I was in Sikup High Street, and I was a big fan of Steve Arley and Cockney Rebel. Um, so I'm going back to the 70s I saw them a number of times in concert and I'm at the NatWest Bank and I've come out and I've looked at the opposite side of the and I saw this guy limp and I thought Steve Harley because Steve Harley had polio uh, so I recognised his limp immediately from watching him on stage oh, I'm never going to be in this, this position again now I knew he was a Millwall fan as well and I was playing for Millwall at the time and probably I'll say maybe I'm plugging myself here but probably more famous than him at the time <laughs> anyway but I've decided I've got to go and see Steve Arley and I'd only just recently see them at uh, the Wembley, at Wembley in concert so I've gone up to him and I, I don't know what he's like but I find that out years later I go up to him hiya Steve and he's just staring at me I went i got to say I love watching you Cockney Rebel a couple of weeks back in concert loved it I'm really enthusiastic and like I can be a bit overpowering at the time he's just staring at me and I've realised he don't want to be talking to me. So Aww. I've said, and it, it felt really awkward. So I just thought, oh, I've got to get away. So I, I said, oh, thanks, Steve. And he looked at me like as if, like, get away. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Not interested. So I've left and come away thinking, I didn't, it's really weird because I think this is a one-off moment. He might have had a bad, I'm thinking all I'm trying to get cover. But luckily, years later... I'm listening on a show for BBC Radio London doing a um, a one-on-one with a uh, DJ called uh, Robert Elms and he's talking to Steve Harley. And in that conversation he says about people, he says, I don't really like people that much. I don't have much time for people. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Oh, there you go. Made sense. Yes! <laughs> it was me. It was not me. me. But it was a really weird because he made me feel so awkward. It was like, yeah, and... Oh, I was really hoping he was going to say I once bumped into Tony. No, 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 no. And I was, I, no. Could, I was so overwhelmed. I think no. he thought I was rude, but I was just dumbstruck Al, by his brilliance. Al, he's on TalkSport Radio one Sunday, right? One Sunday he's on there and he get asked to name his his, his best team because they ask you, you know, your, your, your best 11. Yeah. 
and he puts me and Sheridan up front. Oh, redemption's fine. There you go. Yeah, he puts me and Sheridan up front. And I'm, because I then phoned Talksport, because obviously I know the guys. I said, he got me. And I'm thinking, do I want to? And I thought, no, I don't want to go back there again. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it was a weird experience. <laughs> Tom, you said you have no heroes earlier. This is, well, no, this uh, is I've a not revelation. Met, I've not met Rod Stewart yet. So <laughs> it'll, yeah, not yet. No. I think. Uh, as I remember as a child, like waiting outside the the famous Madstad, uh, people like Marcus Harneman and Stevie Sidwell, and but I don't know whether I'd go as far as saying no heroes interviews. or anything like that. I think the first player I ever l- really loved was first was watching England because my parents didn't like sport, so uh, started watching England games, and it was David Seaman. Loved David Seaman. I was a goalkeeper as a kid. Um, and I did an interview with him and Paul Pesha Salido about four years ago talking about the save. Okay, yeah. And that was brilliant fun. It was great fun. And everyone, the thing is, David, everyone knows David Seaman. Most people in this room will have probably spoken to him. And he, he is such a warm and, um, and uh, likable guy. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't. I wouldn't have called him one of my heroes either. Maybe I've got loads of heroes. I just won't admit to it. Gregor, <laughs> come on. Mine was John Collins growing up as a kid. Ah, well, I was with my Celtic, John. Left-footed, classy, yeah. you know, Scottish footballer. And I played against him once in a reserve game for Nottingham Forest when he was at Fulham. And I played well. And he, he uh, I think he must have heard my accent as well. And he came up to me afterwards and he spoke to me for like five minutes he's saying oh you know where are you from and I like, played really well and you know it was the, I was beaming you still are <laughs> it, it was the best honestly and the other one I think in, since moving into this job is Danny Elvis because and I started by I never ever bring up the fact that like I played football off, particularly when I'm interviewing a Barcelona star mm. but I said uh, I used to play I used to be a fullback um but Danny, I'll be honest, we played completely different sports, and he just like, he just laughed immediately because he was, was the piece was about him as like transforming the way that fullbacks play yeah. as playing like a winger for Barcelona, and I was like in a plodding uh, lower league fullback. So, but both were very gracious uh, with their time. Um, so you should meet your heroes. Well, that's I did. The, I, did the... I did meet my other hero, and it went very badly wrong. Okay. So, my childhood hero was Stevie Highway. The reason I support Liverpool is because of Stevie Highway. The reason I do this job is because of Stevie Highway. He 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 made football come alive to me as an art form almost. Absolutely obsessed with him I was. And I um I quite a few I, obsessions you're yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 no, his birthday. <laughs> and uh, um I I once made a film for Channel 4 about um, what happens to players who are released. They, they, they used to go to this beauty parade series of matches and get picked up by players, um, by managers from lower divisions. And at that time, Steve High was in charge of the Liverpool Academy. And he was he was at the forefront of academy football. He was, he was the big name in academy football. And I said to the cameraman, oh, this film would benefit a lot from Steve Highway's voice. And Cameron went, well, okay then. I said, yeah, but he's my hero. And he said, it doesn't matter. So I went over to Steve Highway and um, asked him if he'd be, if he didn't do a little piece to camera. And he was fantastic. I mean, he, he made the piece. He's so eloquent because he's really intelligent, Steve Highway. He's a, he's a graduate from Warwick University, don't you know? <laughs> and uh, he was very eloquent and fantastic. And I should have just said, thank you so much. I'll let you know when it's on Channel 4. But um, instead, it uh, was awful. 
out of my gut came I love you I love you and I've always adored you and you're the reason I do the job and he looked so embarrassed so embarrassed like I was I was really tacky and ridiculous which I was being and I thought oh okay I've ruined it got a chance at my redemption because I interviewed him for the Times when he left Liverpool. He left the academy and nobody knew why. And Liverpool said, yeah, you can come and meet him. And I said, I don't know why the club said, yeah, you can do that. But anyway, went to the academy. I apologised to him. I said, I, I was really pathetic. This will be grown up, don't worry. And he laughed it off. He said, don't worry about it. I spent all afternoon with him. He was absolutely amazing. And I said, why are you leaving Liverpool? And he said, um, because Rafa Benitez doesn't understand youth football. Wow. Uh, oh, oh, right. Um, I'm thinking, right, journalistically, that's a great line. This is on the eve of the uh, Champions League final against Milan, Milan in, in Greece. And so Rafa's star could not have been higher. Have I got that date wrong? Turkey, I thought it was in... No, the final was... No, the Istanbul, oh, yes. Istanbul. And then two years later... Oh, OK, sorry. Two, two, two years later, uh, Liverpool in the final again. Yeah. So Rafa's star is rising high. And um, so I, journalistically, I wouldn't normally do this, but he's my hero. So I said, um, you sure you want to, <laughs> you sure you want to say that? That Rafa Benitez doesn't understand youth football? He went, yeah, Rafa's great at first team football. He said, but he doesn't understand youth football. OK. A bit later, I went, so uh, just just checking that you want to say, he went, yeah, why wouldn't I say it? Okay. So sure enough, it's a massive piece in the paper, which is great. But the headline is, hmm. Liverpool legend says Rafa doesn't understand youth football. I'm thinking, oh, oh, did he, I did warn him. So what happens is, the, the day of the interview, I'm in a press conference, Liverpool are playing Fulham, after the match, Rafa Benitez doesn't answer any of the questions and just stands there and, and says, apparently I know nothing about youth team football, glaring at me. I thinking, oh, well, I've lost him. And then um, I, 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 Stevie Highway, I, I, I met very, just I met his cousin by accident a few, a few days later. I mean, this is bizarre. And I said, will you phone him and see if he's cross? And he said, oh, uh, he's not in, i.e., yes, he's cross. I then saw someone else who knew him really well. He said, oh, OK, I'll phone him for you. Oh, um, um, he's, he's not in. And then I'm thinking they're just, li they're just lying to protect me. And then I bumped into Steve Harvey on the stairs at Anfield and he blanked me. OK. okay well, that I went think, horribly wrong. I think meeting heroes is complicated. That's the moral <laughs> of this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you can read Alison's lovely interview with Yari Lippmann and... Uh, online Alison Rudd Tom Roddy Tony Cascarino thank you if you enjoyed the show make sure you're subscribed leave us a review and we'll be back on Thursday helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.